0: Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Tonight's episode is a tough one. It deals with a family annihilator, which we've seen a lot of lately. Uh, This one was from 2008. It was Stephen Supel. Stephen Supel murdered the entire family and then killed himself. We have been seeing this a lot lately in the news. Not that it's anything new, but um, Chris Watts most recently... I'm sure, you've heard of that. His pregnant wife, Shannon, and their two young daughters disappeared in August of this year. And, um, you know, he was pleading for their safety and for their return that killed them. There was another one uh, who took off, Robert Fisher. He shot his wife in the head, uh, cut her throat, and then slashed the throats of his 10 year old son his 13-year-old daughter. This was in 2001, and he disappeared. Uh, Some people think that he took off into the woods where he used to go hunting, I believe, and killed himself. Um, Most others believe that he just started a new life, uh, which follows like uh, List, if everyone has probably heard of John List, who killed his family in the 70s. I believe it was 1971. He was a 46-year-old accountant. And uh, he killed his his mother, his wife, and three children. And they weren't discovered for nearly a month. Put all of their bodies in the ballroom because it was this huge, almost mansion-like uh, house. And it was all about financial issues. He lost his job. He was in debt. And... Um, the sad, sad ironic thing about this is that this home that they owned came with a Tiffany, well, there was a Tiffany stained glass over the ballroom, and they estimate it was worth around $100,000, which would have easily gotten him out of debt. However, he was another one who killed his family, but did not kill himself, and went on to live a new life, remarried, and did some accounting in another state. Please stay tuned after the main story to hear some historical newspaper clippings along the same lines as our main story. They will all be family annihilators going back to 1926. And then there is a particularly haunting story from 1939 that I will spend a little extra time on today. Sunday, Easter Sunday, March 23rd, or the morning of Monday, March 24th, 2008, Stephen Supel committed multiple murders in Iowa City, Iowa. On Monday morning, March 24th, Stephen Supel makes a 911 call. This is at 6.31 a.m. Uh, dispatch says, this is 911, location of your emergency, hello. The caller says, am I talking to Iowa City? No, this is, where is the location of your emergency? Caller, Iowa City, Iowa. Dispatch, what's the address? Caller, 629 Barrington Road. Please go there immediately. Dispatch, what's going on there? Caller hangs up. And then Monday morning, that same morning, the 24th, 6.36 a.m., just five minutes later, Supel dies in a fiery crash on Interstate eighty. Witnesses indicate that he was driving at high speeds and seemed to have deliberately crashed into a concrete pillar. At 6.45 a.m., they find Cheryl Supel and her four adopted children, Ethan, 10, Seth, 9, Mira, 5, and Eleanor, 3, all dead, apparently, of blunt force, multiple blunt force trauma injuries to their upper torsos and heads. Police recover from the scene, the presumed murder weapons, two baseball bats. Police go on and try to piece together what happened, and they come up with a timeline of the murders. Sunday a.m., this is the morning, Easter morning. The Supple family attends Easter Mass at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Iowa City. And Stephen and Cheryl's parents are there at the mass as well, and uh, other family and friends say they didn't notice anything unusual. They they noticed nothing unusual about anyone's behavior. Sunday at 8 p.m., a family friend stops by the supil's house, uh, visits with them, and the friend does say that they saw one of the children but noted nothing unusual. Sunday at 11.30 p.m., Stephen Supel leaves a message for his father and brother at their law firm. In the message, he states that his family is in heaven. It is believed that his wife has been killed by this point, although the children were likely still alive. Sunday, 11.30 p.m. to Monday, 3.45 a.m. They're not sure exactly when in this time frame, but at some point, according to a letter that Stephen wrote, He allegedly gathers his four children into the family van, which was parked in the garage, and tries to kill the children and himself with carbon monoxide poisoning. When this doesn't work, Stephen ushers the kids back into the house, bludgeons them to death, uh, apparently using the baseball bats that the police found. The three oldest children were found in their bedrooms. Eleanor, the youngest, was found downstairs in the toy room. Monday morning at 3.45 a.m., Stephen leaves a message at the office of his former employer, Hills Bank. Details of this message wasn't disclosed. Monday, 3.50 a.m., Stephen leaves a message on his home answering machine. Right there in his house that he's at, he leaves a message on the home answering machine expressing his regret. Monday, 4.01 a.m., Stephen leaves a second message on his home answering machine. In this message, he indicates that he tried to drown himself in the Iowa River at Lower City Park, but he kept floating. Monday, 6.31 a.m., 911 dispatchers receive a call directing them to the home of Stephen and Cheryl Supel, telling them to go there immediately. This is the call that Stephen made from his cell phone, and he disconnected before identifying himself. Uh, And then, of course, at 6.36 a.m., the uh, witnesses see Supel drive into the concrete pillar. Stephen Supel was born on August 13, 1965, the son of William and Patricia Tierney Supel. He graduated from Regina High School and the University of Northern Iowa. Cheryl was born February 21, 1966, in Sioux City, Iowa, the daughter of John and Gazella Frey Kesterson. Cheryl was a graduate of City High School and the University of Iowa with a bachelor's degree in education. Cheryl and Stephen were married on June 13, 1990, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Iowa City. The couple had adopted four children together from South Korea, Ethan Ten, Seth, 7, Mira, 5, and Eleanor, 3. Cheryl Supel was a teacher in the Iowa City School District from 1989 until 2001 at Mann, Penn, and Wickham Elementaries. Cheryl Supel taught third and fourth grade before leaving to raise her children. In early February of 2008, Cheryl started working as education and training coordinator at 4C's Child Care Resource and Referral in Iowa City. The Supel name is well known in Iowa City. William F. Supel, Stephen's father, is a partner with Meerdin Supel and Downer Law Firm in Iowa City. William J. Supel, Stephen's brother, also is an attorney at the firm. So what led to the tragic events for this beautiful family? Well, in February of 2008, Stephen Supel was accused of stealing $559,000 from the bank that he worked for. He was a former Hills Bank and Trust executive. He pleaded not guilty to the embezzlement and money laundering charges uh, at the U.S. District Court. The judge set the trial for April 21st. Suppel was released on $250,000 personal bond. And he would only have to pay that if he violated the terms for his release. The judge said that he didn't have a criminal history and government officials did not consider him a flight risk. Straight from an article by Greg Hannigan of the Gazette on February 21st, 2008. It says... Supel 42 of 629 Barrington Road in Iowa City was charged with one count of embezzlement of bank funds and six counts of money laundering while serving as the bank's vice president and controller. The government also is seeking the forfeiture of the $559,040 Supel is accused of stealing. The embezzlement charge carries a maximum penalty of 30 years in jail, a $1 million fine, and five years of supervised release. Each money laundering charge is punishable up to 20 years in jail, a $500,000 fine, or twice the value of funds allegedly stolen, and three years of supervised release. Wednesday's arraignment was Suple's first court appearance since a federal grand jury indicted him last week. The indictment, which followed an investigation by the FBI and the Johnson County Sheriff's Office, says the alleged thefts began on July 26, 2000 and continued until September 12, 2007. The hearing lasted 15 minutes. Suple, dressed in a navy blue suit and wearing glasses, spoke only when the judge asked questions, giving mostly just short yes and no. They also told him he cannot possess any firearms, narcotics, controlled substances, or drugs without a prescription. Despite Stephen Suple's recent legal problems, friends and family were shocked by the apparent violent deaths of a six-member family that they described as extremely loving. In a statement, the Supple's parents said family members had looked for signs of stress recently, but saw none. Various family members were with Stephen, Cheryl, and the children during Easter weekend, and they saw nothing unusual. The Reverend Kenneth Kuntz of St. Mary's Catholic Church in Iowa City, where the family worshipped, said he went to the home of Stephen Supple's parents Monday morning where the family had gathered. They were in a state of shock, I guess I would say, he said. We were able to pray with them and be with them. Stephen, Cheryl, and their four children attended Easter Mass just this past weekend, Kuhn said. He went on to say that they had done a wonderful job of adopting the four children. Always appeared to be a caring and loving family. Sister Agnes Giblin, a nun who was Stephen Suple's third grade teacher, said that Stephen seemed to be rallying. Last fall, when authorities started questioning him about thousands of dollars apparently missing from the bank where he worked, Suple's upbeat demeanor turned dark. He looked haggard and down as anybody would be, said Sister Agnes, a longtime nun who prepared the couple for marriage in 1990, but I just found him coming back to his old self. In fact, We were commenting that he was looking really good lately. According to police, a four-page note and voicemails left throughout a murderous spree by former bank vice president Stephen Supple offered a detailed blow-by-blow account of Supel's actions. The autopsy results showed that he bludgeoned to death his wife and four children before taking his own life. Based on the note and voicemails, police said Supel, 42, killed his wife, Cheryl Supel, by 11.30 p.m. Sunday, then left his first voicemails for his father and brother at the law firm where they worked. The next voicemails left for former colleagues at Hills Bank and Trust, where Supel had worked, were placed at about 3.45 a.m. Monday. Nearly 18 years after Stephen and Cheryl Supel were married at St. Mary's Catholic Church, Friends and family had to gather to say goodbye. Six caskets containing the bodies of the Suple family rested end-to-end at the front of the church. Flowers and a photo of each family member sat next to each casket. Behind the casket stood two enlarged family photos, including one of the family in front of a Christmas tree. As mourners entered the church, many walked to the front, slowly passing by the closed caskets. Some reached out to touch them. Others crossed themselves and knelt before each casket in prayer. It seems as if everyone who entered the church were greeted by someone with a hug or a comforting pat on the shoulder. Many dabbed tears from their eyes as they entered the sanctuary, which was awash in red, greens, yellows, and blues from the sun shining through the stained glass windows. The Reverend Kenneth Kunt said the events of last week are beyond our ability to comprehend. No words can describe the depth of emotion we feel in our hearts. He described how the entire Supel family attended Easter Mass hours before the police believed the slayings began. There was some controversy in the community about allowing the funeral to be all together with the entire family, including Stephen Supel. But most said that the church leaders did the right thing by allowing Stephen Supple to be mourned with his wife and children in the church where the Supples were married and their children were baptized. Reverend Ken Kuntz, the church's pastor, praised the extended families of Stephen and Cheryl Supple for their forgiveness and said, The scourge of mental illness leaves us bewildered, confused, and perhaps angry. The Catholic Church used to deny church funerals for people who committed suicide, but those rules were relaxed as society learned more about mental illness. The Reverend John Dietzen said funerals can be granted in the case of suicides and even murder suicides because church leaders do not presume to know the perpetrator's mental state. With a lot more understanding of the complicated psychological construction of the human mind, we admit we don't know where a person stands with God. Dyson said. Sometimes a horrible, unexplained act without prior hint of behavior is evidence enough of a mental break. A neighbor who hung out with the Souples and other families who had young children, he knew about the Souples' legal troubles, but thought the family was working through it. I do know he was distraught over the situation, but there was no indication this was going to happen, she said. They were great people. They were involved with their kids were just still in shock about why this had to happen. Cheryl's previous students told stories of her kindness. She was a very sweet lady, very patient. She didn't deserve this, said one child. Another said she was there to talk to. She was very caring. Another told a story about a young boy who had a very difficult home life and that Cheryl would invite him over for dinner And they were basically a second family to him. And there was another young lady whose sister died of cancer during her fourth grade year. And Cheryl showed absolutely amazing support. She took her under her wing and she did a great job of informing other kids in the class, made sure that they were treating her okay. And she even remained after class with her one day to help her write a poem after the loss of her sister which the teacher then framed with a photo of the girl and her sisters. Men are often driven to murder their families by intense feelings of shame resulting from a job loss or a perceived inability to provide for family members. Forensic psychologists and criminologists said, however, that these murderers do not simply snap, but usually have long histories of mental illness. Next up historical clipping starting with a particularly gruesome one from 1927 and ending with a particularly sad and haunting one from 1939. In between, we do hit, I believe, 1954 and 1962 as well. And remember to hit subscribe so that you do not miss any of our episodes. For any feedback or episode suggestions, you can contact me on CherryAvenueTrueCrimePodcast.com or on the Facebook page for Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. The first one comes from December 24th, 1926, Texaco, New Mexico. Insane father kills family. The bodies of Mrs. George Hassel and her nine children were today dug from the cellar of the Hassel home where they had been buried by George Hassel, husband and father. The gruesome tragedy was unearthed with the attempted suicide of Hassel. Two weeks ago, neighbors began to worry about the disappearance of Mrs. Hassel and the nine children. Hassel said they had gone to Oklahoma for arrest. Following Hassel's attempt to commit suicide, officers went to the home. Finding fresh dirt turned up in the cellar, they started digging. Within a few feet, they uncovered the body of the youngest child, about a year old. One by one, the other members of the family were taken from the grave. Hassel tried to kill himself by slashing his throat with a knife. He is not thought to be in serious condition. Officers say they believe he is insane. In another article that rehashes this one exactly, they also add that eight of these kids were George Hassel's stepkids, and one was his biological George Hassel also told authorities that he killed a wife and three children in California but would not say who or where. December 10th, 1935, Father Slay's family of three ends own life. Omaha, Nebraska, December 9, 1935. Charles A. Cobb, 41, today killed his wife, his two sons, and himself because he said in a note he no longer could stand the heavy debt burden that faced him. Cobb was found dead in his automobile. Beside him was his hunting dog. Monoxide gas conducted into the car through a tube attached to the exhaust pipe had killed both. Police finding the Cobb home locked smashed in a door and discovered the bodies of Mrs. Cobb and the boys Robert, 12, and Charles, Jr., 11. The mother and her sons lay dead in a separate bedroom on the living room mantel was a note reading rose mrs cobb went to sleep first then robert and last chubby charles later detectives found a second note an eight page one in which cobb said i am going to take the lives of those most dear to me in as painless a manner as possible the note explained the debt burden that faced cobb a telegraph company operator for nineteen years and his despair at the family's lack of funds. Police said Mrs. Cobb's head was crushed apparently by a blow from a blunt weapon. An autopsy was to be performed to determine the exact cause of death of all three. December 20, 1954. Kills wife and three children. Father slays family with hatchet, then tries to commit suicide. Pasadena, California, December 19, 1954. Police said a Pasadena father today beat his wife and three children to death with a hatchet, then tried to take his own life by poisoning and asphyxiation. The father was identified as Harold Euler, 40. He was taken to Huntington Memorial Hospital after police found the wife, Betty, 35, and children lying on the floor of the family home. Police Lieutenant Wayne Bonford said the murder weapon was found at the home beside the bodies of the victims. Euler, dressed in pajamas, was found in the bathroom where he tried to end his own life by taking poison, then turning on a gas jet. Police said they had to break the door down to reach him. Police identified the children as Randolph, 12, Janet, 9, and Martha, 7. They were found in separate rooms. February 17, 1962 Army doctor found dead in hotel in Washington. Father slays family, then himself. The wife and four small sons of an Army doctor were found shot to death in their beds in Columbia, South Carolina Friday, and the physician was later discovered dead in a hotel here in Washington in apparent suicide. The search for the doctor, Captain Vincent J. Madsen Jr., 33, ended in the nation's capital late Friday afternoon when a hotel detective found his body shot through the mouth. A 22 caliber pistol was discovered nearby. Dr. Michael F. Lapudla, admitted physician at CC General Hospital, said Madison was brought in DOA, dead on arrival, and that he apparently committed suicide. An all-points bulletin had been broadcast for Madison, a native of Syracuse, New York, and graduate of Syracuse University, who had not been seen after leaving the Fort Jackson Hospital near Columbia Wednesday. The search was started when South Carolina authorities discovered the family tragedy. They identified the victims as Madison's 33-year-old wife, Sally, and four sons, Vincent, 7, Mark, 6, Brian, 5, and Hugh, 2. The two older boys were found in a blood-splattered double-deck bunk bed in a back bedroom of the family home. The two younger boys were found in single beds in a second bedroom. Each had been shot several times. The body of Mrs. Madison was in the master bedroom. It was not immediately determined how many times she had been shot. No weapon was found. Police said Dr. Madison's green Ford bearing license number E147626 also was missing, but they believed he was still in the area. Neighbors described the 33-year-old physician as reserved and very strict. Nobody else in the neighborhood could have been dead since Wednesday and nobody know it said G.B. Davis, a railroad engineer who lives across the street. Mrs. Madison was described as very attractive, and neighbors said the Madison children got along well with other youngsters in the neighborhood. Three red bicycles belonging to the Madison children were found in the front yard. In the kitchen, Mrs. Madison had proudly pinned up an art project of one of her sons. Several cutouts of four-leaf clovers posted to a piece of art paper. Officials at nearby Fort Jackson, where Madison was stationed, said the gynecologist had advised them last Wednesday that his family was sick and requested permission to stay home and attend them. His request was granted, but when he failed to show up for duty Friday, as scheduled, an officer went to the home to investigate. The colonel, who went to the home immediately, became suspicious when he saw 14 quarts of milk piled up on the front porch and the lights blazing in the house a modest one-story old brick bungalow. Police were summoned, and they were forced their way inside. The phone was ringing when the police first gained entrance, but when they answered it, the party at the other end hung up. Witnesses said the living quarters of the house showed no signs of a struggle, and it wasn't until police entered the bedrooms that they were sure there had been foul play. We're going back to 1939, and this case had a double-page spread in the newspaper, actually multiple, double page spreads. Uh, I had a picture of the home, a diagram of the apartment that is in the top of the home. And this takes place in Salt Lake City, November 25th, 1939. One of the newspaper reports reads as follows. Father kills family, then slays himself. Salt Lake City, November 25th. Early morning gunfire wiped out an entire family of five today. Sheriff S. Grant Young said the father shot his wife and three children with a small rifle, then killed himself with the same weapon. The mother and children also were strangled with heavy wire. Gas was pouring from the open jets. The dead. Grant F. Wentz, about 35. Mrs. Afton Wentz, about 33. Daleen, 7. Marie, 6. And Barth, 5. The family lived above a tavern owned by Wentz. Authorities began checking Wentz's affairs in an effort to learn a motive for the deed. Now, that was just a quick clip from a newspaper, and then the full-page spreads and double-page spreads are following. Also, the Salt Lake Telegram, Salt Lake City, Utah, November 25th, 1939. Five in Salt Lake City family found slain. Coroner says murder, suicide. Miss Franchet smelled the odor of gas as soon as she entered. Downstairs in the inn, one light was burning. On the floor were two short pieces of garden hose and a small tub. Bloodstains were on the floor, she said. Saw a slight burning upstairs in the Wentz living quarters. She ran up, looked into the combination living dining room, and saw the body of Marie Wentz lying on a couch. She whirled to the front of the second floor, saw Mrs. Wentz's body in a front bedroom. Frightened, she ran to the Anderson brothers' garage at 2805 South State Street and summoned William Anderson. Mr. Anderson went to the inn with Mrs. Franchet and took one look upstairs, ran back to the garage, and telephoned the sheriff's office. Officers said it may have been significant that Miss Franchet was not told to work Friday night. It was the first night in the month that she was, had been employed at the inn that she had not worked at night and slept in the establishment she told investigators. The officers found Daylene's body on a bed in a bedroom on the north end of the living quarters. Barth's body was on another bed in the same room. Mr. Wentz's body was in the upstairs kitchen slumped in front of a stove. At his feet was a twenty two caliber rifle, one empty cartridge at its side, the rifle was of pump action me- mechanism and the pump was pulled back into cocking position with a fresh shell ready to be thrown into the chamber. The pump had not been pushed back, however, into firing position. This may have jerked the pump back with a convulsive motion or pulled it back as he fell. On the bed beside Daleen's body was found a bloodied carpenter's claw hammer. At first, officers were not certain whether Mrs. Wentz and the three children had been shot or slugged. Later, investigation indicated that they had been strangled, then slugged with the hammer. Downstairs, in a wastebasket behind the beer bar, officers found four pieces of heavy insulated wire, apparently cut from a radio antenna outside. They found bits of hair and blood on the wire. Officers said the wires apparently had been used in strangling the woman and three children whose necks bore marks presence of the pieces of hose and tub along with a pocket knife found beside them could not be explained by the officers neither could the bloodstains downstairs they said however that mr wentz apparently had strangled and slugged the victims upstairs then the pieces of wire behind the bar to dispose of them turned on the gas in the downstairs stove then gone up to the kitchen and shot himself investigation showed that gas had been turned on in four jets and a warming oven in the downstairs stove examination of the bodies at salt lake general hospital dr george n curtis county physician said the mother and three children apparently had been first strangled then struck on the heads there were no bullet wounds he said he said examination of mr wentz's body showed that a bullet had been fired into one nostril and had lodged in the head apparently the rifle muzzle had been placed against the nostril then the gun fired, he said. There were no external powder burns, but evidence of burns was found inside one nostril, he explained. The motive for the tragedy was clouded. Miss Franchet told officers there never had been any evidence of difficulty within the family. The family seemed happy, she said. She could tell of no domestic quarrels. Marshal Price knew the family, and he said that it never had any indication of trouble, save possibly financial. The family apparently plen- had plenty of financial trouble, he said. They had just bought the property and Mr. Wentz had told me he was paying $65 a month on it and that he spent nearly all their money fixing it up. shelf of the bar at the Instead Inn, officers Saturday morning, while searching for clues to help them assemble the facts behind the Wentz slaying, found an almost empty whiskey bottle and a quantity of papers. Bills paid, bills due, and business matters pending. Some of them indicated that Grant F. Wentz had at one time paid $1,000 to become distributor for penny hand lotion machines that he later had sold his holdings for $40. Police theorize that Wentz spent much of the night going over his personal papers. William Anderson, operator of a garage and service station at 2805 South State. Street, who notified the sheriff's office, ran to the Wentz home after Ming Toi Franchet first had noticed presence of gas at the house. My father, James C. Anderson, came running to me and said that the Wentz house was full of gas and they all must be dead, Mr. Anderson said. This was after Ming Toi Franche, who had been employed by the Wences, had come running from the Wentz home. They both were so excited that I don't know just what all they said. I ran to the Wen's home, opened the door. I could smell gas, and upstairs we saw the bodies. When I got there, I thought it was just gas. I ran to each of the rooms to see if any of them were alive. I saw that they apparently were not, and then I called the sheriff's office. I did not turn off the gas in the house. Ming-Toi Franchet, 19, was the first to discover the carnage in the Grant F. Wen's home, Saturday morning. She believed she was going to her daily job when she unlocked a side door at the Wentz Inn shortly after 8 a.m. Saturday. She had been working for a month as a waitress and maid for the Wentz family, and Friday night was the first since that time that she had slept in her own home. When she found the main doors to the Wentz home locked, she went to a side door, and thinking Mr. and Mrs. Wentz and their three children were in Provo and the house unoccupied, unlatched a door screen and pushed open the unlocked door. The first thing I noticed was the smell of gas, she said, but when I walked into the main room downstairs, I saw a dish pail with two long pieces of hose in it. I still didn't think there was anyone in the house, but I went upstairs, and the first door I opened was a living room on the south side of the house. I looked on the couch and saw Marie without any covers on. Then I knew something was wrong, because Marie always slept in the bedroom across the hall with her older sister, Daylene. I didn't go to Daylene's bedroom, but I went into the front bedroom where Mrs. Wentz slept. I saw her, her head all covered with blood, and I got scared. I ran out of the house into the garage next door. Bill, William Anderson, went back with me, and then we found all the bodies. Dailene's bedroom on the big bed where Marie usually slept with Daileen was the oldest Wentz girl. On the small bed on the other side of the room, Barth was lying. Then we went into the upstairs kitchen and found Mr. Wentz on the floor by the stove with his head in a big pool of blood, Miss Franchet related to Chief Deputy Sheriff George Beckstead. The girl told Deputy Beckstead she had been accustomed to sleeping in the third bedroom of the Wentz home, which was at the head of the stairs, but Friday evening while she was shopping in Salt Lake City, Wentz went to her home and told her mother, Mrs. M.L. Morgan, he did not want Ming Toy to come to work until... 8 a.m. Saturday. He told mother that he and Mrs. Wentz and the children were going to Provo about 11 p.m. Friday and that I would have to open up the inn. Mother said he told her that Mrs. Wentz and the children had gone to Mrs. Wentz's parents' home in Orem and that his parents felt slighted, so they were going down to Orem to see them, Miss Franchet said. The girl told Deputy Beckstead that she was not aware of any marital or financial difficulties in the Wentz family. Children Given Bedtime Meal In the upstairs kitchen of the Grant F. Wentz home, Deputy Sheriff Saturday morning found evidence of a last meal. On a porcelain top table a foot or so away from the body of Wentz were a platter containing two half-eaten cheeseburgers and two pieces of salary. Three empty drinking glasses piled atop each other and two milk bottles, one empty and the other almost full, led deputies to believe that the Wentz children, Daleen 7, Marie 6, and Barth 5 had been fed before going to bed for the last time Friday night. Marshall relates Wentz's last talk. Marshall David L. Price of South Salt Lake and the last person known to have talked with Grant F. Wentz owner of the Instead Inn, reported Saturday he found nothing amiss at the place at 1230 a.m. I was making regular rounds and stopped at the inn when I saw the light burning on the main floor and Wentz counting money behind the bar. The doors were locked, but he let me in when I knocked. I talked with him about 15 minutes and he seemed in good spirits. I remember asking him how business was and he said, not so good. We carried on a general conversation for a few minutes, and then I went out to continue my rounds, Marshall Price said. The marshal, together with the deputy sheriffs, reported that that was the first time any troubles had occurred at the Wentz establishment, to their knowledge. Radio ground wires used to strangle Wentz victims. Four sections of heavy insulated copper wire used as ground for the table model radio in the living room of Grant F. Wentz's home were used for another grimmer purpose, Salt Lake City, Salt Lake County deputy sheriffs reported Saturday. The four lengths of wire were found in a wastebasket beside the refreshment bar on the main floor of the Instead Inn. The investigators said the wires were used to throttle Mrs. Wentz and her three children while they slept in their rooms on the second floor. Chief Deputy Sheriff George Beckstead said it appeared that whoever slew Mrs. Wentz and the three children first strangled them with the wire then crushed their skulls with a claw hammer, removed the wires from the throats of the victims, took the wires downstairs and stuffed them into the wastebasket, and then turned on five gas jets in a stove in the main floor kitchen. The only living thing in the Grant F. Wentz home, 2827 South State Street, Saturday morning, when Salt Lake County sheriffs arrived at the scene, was a lone goldfish swimming in a bowl of water on a table in the second-floor living room. Less than six feet away, on a couch, head propped on a pillow, was the body of Marie Wentz, Six. At her feet, on the couch, was a book entitled, It Happened One Day. Tragedy House was dignified. The house where Salt Lake's tragic suicide murder occurred Saturday is a dignified old two-story structure built on a good many years ago. Neighbors did not know the names of the original owners, but they said the house had been a landmark in this area for years. The house has a white front and is of brick construction. In the rear is a large red circular barn. The upstairs front has a porch and the north side front has lattice work. The Wentz family used the lower part of the house for a small inn. Near the front downstairs was a small room with booths and tables. Immediately in the back of the front room was a larger room that housed a beer bar and other inn equipment. The cooking for the inn was done in a kitchen in the rear. A winding stairway led upstairs where the family had living quarters. Two bedrooms were on either side of the front upstairs. Mrs. Wendt's body was found in the front, south bedroom. At the south center was a combination living and dining room where the body of Marie was found on a sofa. Across the hall on the north side was another bedroom where the bodies of daylene and Barth were found. On the rear south side upstairs was the family kitchen. Mr. Wentz's body was found lying against the stove with a 22 caliber rifle at his feet. The bodies of Grant F. Wentz, his wife Afton Angus Wentz, and their three children daylene Marie, and Barth, victims in a quadruple slaying and suicide, were taken to Provo Saturday afternoon. Funeral arrangements are being made at the Berg Mortuary at Provo. Mr. Wentz was born in Orem, July 1st, 1906, a son of Mr. and Mrs. Frank F. Wentz, and was a graduate of Lincoln High School in Orem. He attended the Utah State Agricultural College at Logan for a time, and then served for two years in the United States Navy. He is survived by his parents and two sisters, Mrs. Zenda Wentz, Rowley of Provo, and Miss Myrtle Wentz of Orem. Mrs. Afton Angus Wentz was born February 3, 1912, at Lakeshore, a daughter of George C. and Marintha Wrigley Angus, and attended public schools at Provo, graduating from the Provo High School and LDS Seminary in 1931. She was married to Mr. Wentz in the LDS Temple at Salt Lake City on March 16, 1932, and the couple then moved to Orem where they operated a chicken ranch. They remained in Orem until March of 1939 when they moved to Salt Lake City and established a lunchroom business. Mrs. Wentz was active in the LDS church work in Orem and participated in Relief Society activities. In addition to her parents, she is survived by three brothers J. Woodruff Angus. John and Tad Angus, all of Provo. Daylene Wentz was born December 15, 1931, and Marie April 20, 1933. Daylene was a second grade pupil at the Woodrow Wilson School in South Lake and South Salt Lake, and Marie was a first grade pupil at the same school. The date of Barf Wentz's birth was not immediately available.